You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. speak to you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus goes home, <laughs> and immediately drama ensues. Does that sound familiar to anyone else? I felt this text in my bones this week, the, the story of Jesus going home and immediately being rejected. Uh, the story in the Gospels where he encounters his own family and community, his own church, his own synagogue, his hometown. And at this point in Nazareth, uh, you know, there's some debate, but there's probably a couple hundred people in all of Nazareth. They would have known Jesus well, as we heard in the text. And he goes home. And any family, any community of people, any church, any synagogue, any government, operates by a system, a system of relationships. Every family has a system. And Jesus goes back to his own community system, his own family system. And what we hear is that they're more interested in maintaining the status quo of that system over joining Jesus in his mission. They were more interested in who they thought they knew Jesus to be as a child and in the previous system more than they were in who he was revealing himself to be and where he was going. I'm a big proponent of what's called family systems theory, and it's the study of of how we interact in relationships in our family, and it's been expounded on to to churches and and any number of different groups of people. And one of the primary characteristics of a system, of any system, whether it is that between relationships with, with each other or relationships in nature, is that of homeostasis. And it's one of the first things you really learn in looking at family systems is that every system wants to maintain the status quo, wants to hold things the way they have always been. And any time one element of that system gets out of line, the rest of the system reacts and responds in an anxious way to bring everything back to the way it is. It's kind of like a thermostat in that way. It's a tendency of any set of relationships to strive perpetually in self-corrective ways to preserve the organizing principles of its existence. Imbalance in the network of various relationships, all systems work together to resist change. That's just kind of the nature of the world that we're in. It's what we see when Jesus goes home, the system that resists this change. So every system has a thermostat. The old system is perfectly balanced and designed to keep getting the same results over and over and over again. But Jesus comes and says he's making all things new. And just as Nazareth refused to reorient their lives around the person of Jesus and his mission, so we too must reorient our lives and mission to match his. Families fight for the status quo when the familiar becomes foreign 
But what we hear today is that the mission of the kingdom of God continues to march forward, whether the system adjusts or not. This is a prophetic text. As all our readings this morning, from the psalm to, to Ezekiel, where he's told to go to a people who will not hear and will not listen, and yet he's still told to go and tell them. This is all so prophetic. So in Mark 6 this morning, it's mirrored as well in Luke 4. Jesus goes to his hometown, and initially they loved his miracles and what he was saying, right? There was this fondness. This is our hometown boy coming home, and he's doing all kinds of cool stuff out here. Wonder what he's going to do when he comes back here to show us, right? But in, we hear that he's ultimately rejected, and we don't get much of his message in, in the Mark version of this, but in Luke... Luke tells us what's going on. He tells us what happens. So in Luke 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he picks up the text to read that day. Just as Teresa read today from this text. So Jesus went and picked up and picked up where the text was, was, was scheduled for that day. And he read out of Isaiah and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And listen to this. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. And then a few verses later, they try to throw him off a cliff and kill him. <laughs> what happened? What did Jesus say that Mark leaves out that Luke tells us about that flips the script, that changes things, that, that all of a sudden they realize that he's trying to change something and we don't like the direction he's going? It abruptly ends this scripture that Jesus quotes out of Isaiah. It goes on. And his hearers would have known this passage from Isaiah by heart. They would have known what the next verses would say where Jesus conveniently decided to stop without reading. It goes on to say the year of the Lord's favor, that year of jubilee that is being declared and the day of vengeance of our God against the Gentiles. That's what he left off. It was this year of the Lord's favor that's being brought and they anticipated this in their nationalistic zeal to necessarily mean extermination of all those who are causing us problems in the system that we have. And Jesus stops before that. Their positive affections he receives at this point is the result of an audience believing that they were the primary recipients of, and beneficiaries of the favor that God is showing in the Isaiah passage. After all, Jesus is back in his hometown, right? Declaring the year of the Lord's favor, declaring himself to be the Messiah. Why wouldn't this necessarily mean that it's, he's coming home to give us all the things that we deserve, right? And then Jesus goes on and reinterprets it and tells them, Luke 4, 26, Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet, prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. So they realized Jesus is coming back home as a prophet declaring that God has chosen and is favoring those outside the system, bringing them in the system. And they don't like the change. 
the thermostat starts to shift. They expected that they would be the sole inheritors of this year of Jubilee, which would which raised their affections for this hometown boy, but quickly flipped to this murderous rage when they realized it was going to be directed at others. And in Mark, we get this great word that he caused offense. That word is, is scandalon. He caused a scandal, right? He caused a scandal by what he was saying. God's intervention, therefore, is on behalf of those outside the current structures, the current structures by which those who are outside cannot help themselves. God comes to Israel and he says, coming to redeem a people, and I'm making all things new. And Mark, he goes on, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And yet he was amazed at their unbelief. See, Jesus had been going throughout Israel proclaiming this truth, repent and doing all these miracles. And then he comes home. And the only thing that changes for Jesus when he comes home is the context of the crowd, not his methods, not his mission, not his ministry. Nothing changed except his crowd. See, this previous knowledge of the person of Jesus, who they had known at one other uh, time in their life, prevented the power of Jesus from going out because of their unbelief, because of their hard-heartedness and rejection of Jesus, where he told them he was going. It prevented the Spirit's healing ministry, just as they often prevent the forgiveness of sin. But it wasn't only his, his message, right? Notice what he does then. His mission shifts from what they expected as well. He came and he he proclaimed this to them, fulfilling what even Ezekiel was saying, that this people is hard-hearted and they will not listen to you, but you're going to go anyway. And he went and he told them. And as soon as they, they rejected him, what did he do? He went on. And he went about and among the villages preaching. He just moved on. And then he taught these disciples that he's sending on to shake the dust from your your sandals when you're met with this kind of inhospitality. It's the mission that Nazareth had missed. The mission that God had been proclaiming throughout all of their history that they had fundamentally misunderstood in thinking that God was coming to make them more comfortable We often hear in this passage, we sometimes, familiarity breeds contempt, right? Familiarity brings contentedness and comfort. And the system reacts. Anytime something comes and upsets, it's familiarity and comfort and contentedness. Even Jesus. They had missed the commander's intent as to what the mission was. Are you familiar with this term? This is a military term. So maybe if you, ha- if you, you I'm, I'm not, I didn't go th- come from the military, but if you had, you might understand this. The commander's intent, it's a key element to help a plan maintain relevancy and applicability in a chaotic or dynamic environment. It's what a successful mission looks like. Commander's intent fully recognizes the chaos, the lack of complete information, changes in enemy situation, and other relevant factors that may make a plan either completely or partially obsolete when it is executed. So it is what is the commander really intending for this mission? What is the end purpose, even in the midst of the chaos that uh, they're being dropped into? 
Commander's intent, therefore, empowers initiative, improvisation, and adaptation by providing guidance of what a successful conclusion looks like. So here's an example of what, how commander's intent works. During World War II, on D-Day, in the invasion of France, which had been planned for years, uh, airborne forces planned and rehearsed for months a precise series of glider and parachute landings throughout, um, throughout the region to secure bridges, road junctions, and other key terrain that would enable the ground invasion forces to advance rapidly inland. The airborne invasion forces took off from England and months of planning appeared to vanish instantly. The parachute forces dropped into unmarked landing zones. Gliders landed in the wrong areas and thousands of soldiers from different units were mixed together in the night. It appeared that a military disaster had occurred when those forces on the ground that were dropped behind enemy lines started saying, this isn't what I signed up for. That's not the way we did it back home. I'm not getting my needs met. Oh, wait. Is that, I don't think that's what they said. That's what we say in the church. How many times have you heard those terms? When the mission field changes. We've never done it that way before. Who is this guy? <laughs> Instead, they said, hours later, the original military objectives on D-Day had been accomplished by ad hoc units that faced much fiercer German resistance. The commander's intent had saved the day, and leaders and soldiers at all levels understood that no matter where they landed, they had to form into units and seize the bridges and key terrain. The plan was a failure, but good commander's intent and superior training allowed improvisation and initiative to save the mission. Nazareth had missed the commander's intent. Familiarity that moves to contempt in the face of a shifting mission provokes God to take it away. And that's what we hear. He comes to Nazareth, and instead of say, say, staying and doing more miracles and showing off bigger and doing fancier things to try to coerce and convince them of the new mission that God was doing for their own good, instead, he goes about and sends people to the other regions. And we in the church so often find and meet Jesus here. And that's a good and wonderful thing when all of a sudden he patches us up and we experience Jesus in a real way where, where our needs have been met and we've grown and we've become something new. And that's where we want to sit. We want to sit with the previous knowledge of Jesus that we had rather than being open to the good God who might have something even bigger for us. And we resist the new move of God. Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God, says this, a famous line. He said, God does not have a mission for his church in the world. God has a church for his mission. Meaning, God is doing something in the world in which he is redeeming the entirety of creation from one end to the other by calling all men to repent and making all things new. And he put his church in the world to accomplish that, to work through to accomplish that. He did not have a church and then say, oh, uh, well, we've got this group of people. Maybe we need to give them something to do. Y'all figure it out. No, he's doing something in the world and he's put the church here for that one singular reason. But churches fight and argue 
and experience large amounts of anxiety when they forget the mission. When the mission of maintaining the status quo becomes bigger than the mission of the kingdom of God. When the mission of maintaining the comfort of the season's past becomes the singular mission of the community to maintain bigger than the mission and the vision of the kingdom of God. Dear church, do not miss the warning that is implicit in Ezekiel and in the story of Nazareth. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. But he didn't say he would build ours or yours or theirs or one liturgical style or one particular approach. He said he will build his church. So in closing today, I want to to speak specifically about four ways that we experience and we show and we we, um, show contempt for Jesus when the mission and the battlefield changes. The number one, the first one, is our reaction to repentance. Jesus called them to repentance. In verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. We show contempt for Jesus and his mission when we refuse to acknowledge where we must repent. Number one, it comes home to Nazareth first. Repent. Where have we interjected our mission? In the place of Jesus and his. The call there is first and foremost to repentance. But it's also the message that we proclaim to our friends and neighbors. Repent for the good life of the kingdom has come near. Second, in our reaction to outsiders, which is what we hear in Luke. Jesus' reordering of the Isaiah passage in Luke where he tells them this, that he's come to them for the sake of others. How do we react and respond to the welcoming of outsiders? to the calling of outsiders, to the moving out towards them rather than expecting them to come and join us and to get on our timetable and on our preferences. How do we move out towards them just as Jesus moved towards those in his community? And number three, hmm, this is the one that rubs me wrong sometimes. Ready? Our response to both the community that God has given us and the leadership that God has given us. I'm in Enneagram 8. You probably will talk about that, what that means sometime later. But that means I don't like people telling me what to do, right? (laughs) I don't like strong leadership because I think I've got it figured out. How do we respond to the commander and his intent, to the leadership that God has given us and the community that he has called us to live this out with? Jesus did everything well, the scriptures tell us. And yet he was still rejected by those who knew him most. He still did not live up to their expectations. His people were still disappointed. Why then do we expect sometimes our spiritual leaders to be bigger than Jesus? To not let us down. When Jesus' closest people could not follow him, and he could not give them all that he had because of their scandalization of his leadership. What could God do through a congregation if instead they decided to trust the leadership that God had given them and alongside those who he had led here? The people were disparaging of Jesus because he did not cater to their every preference. 
Let us look and imagine where maybe we may be knee-jerk reaction, having a knee-jerk reaction in the same way. Will Jesus be amazed at our unbelief in our fight for the status quo? Or will we accept his invitation to participate in God's mission of making all things new? Lastly, number four, our reaction to the mission. In verse 12, again, he charged them. He sent them out with nothing and proclaimed that people everywhere should repent. Do you think they were fearful of not getting what they needed on the mission? He told them not to take two coats. Leave your money bag. Go, proclaim. I know the way I'm wired, I would be very anxious and nervous that whatever, any number of things, let's line them up, right? That I'm not going to get the things that I really need at this particular important season of my life. Therefore, I'm going to maybe shove a few cookies in my pocket or whatever, maneuver for a way to secure and make sure that I'm going to have my needs met down the road. Jesus ordered his disciples to take nothing with them on the mission. Do you not think they too were fearful of not getting their needs met? What fear do you need to trust Jesus in to non-anxiously join him and his church on mission? Do you love the comfort of the previous seasons more than the mission we are called to? And where is your religious familiarity keeping you from from real friendship with Jesus and his church. And lastly, for those of you who who have stepped out in obedient faith to whatever it is God has called you, whether in your family or in your community or here in your church, wherever that may be, know that Jesus and his church are not unfamiliar to rejection. Jesus ultimately came home to his, his closest friends that he grew up around and his family and was rejected. Mother Teresa, in reflecting on this, would say, rejection is common to the Lord and his church. You, however, are not called to be successful. You're called to be faithful. I pray that we would have the strength and the vision to take those words and to join Jesus on his mission even when that mission sometimes does not look like a successful outcome, we're called to be faithful to him and his kingdom.